Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear, and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who cover the issues that matter most. Evan Hill, who was one of the central team members, stood up from his desk. He got a text message from our Russian video editor who was translating. And he said, I've got a bunch of coordinates that these guys are using. Evan comes back, checks the coordinates against the hospital that we have, stood up from his desk. And he said, we have them. That proved without a doubt that, that Russian pilots had committed some of the worst atrocities in Syria last year. My guest today is Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times journalist Maliki Brown. Maliki has led investigations into the Las Vegas mass shooting, chemical weapons attacks in Syria, and he and his team investigated the Saudi officials who killed journalist Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey. Maliki, how are you? Shona, good to be with you. Well, Maliki, I feel like a lot of people will know of your work, but they might not necessarily know how on earth you landed in the New York Times. And if you could tell us a bit more about your journey, that would be amazing. Great question about how I landed in the New York Times. Pure fluke, I think. They were just, they they had done an innovation report back around 2014. And nobody has told me this, but I think they were looking for, they realized there's a big gap between the Times and all of the other, other digital publications that were out there. And I think they started looking for advice about, you know, what they should be doing and people who were doing things in different ways and whatever. And Claire Wardle, who was a good friend of mine from the Storyful days, was one of those people who came in and uh, I remember her saying to me afterwards um, there was a big chemical blast in in China um, and I was working with a startup called Reportedly at the time and we were you know we were big into breaking news and like visual news coming out on social media and stuff like that and um, and the Times hadn't yet reported on it and she used that as as an example and lo and behold then I end up you know in there for an informal chat and that just kind of led to um Let's do a job somehow. I mean, it started back in in Ireland with a print magazine that my uncle ran. Uncle is Vincent Brown. He's a journalist in Ireland um, called Village. And that's where I kind of got my apprenticeship in, in journalism and production and photo editing. And like when you're in a small magazine, you end up doing everything. Um, and then in this type of journalism and kind of what was called social reporting at the time, but like social media verification and news gathering uh, was with Mark Little at Storyful. And, uh, and that was, you know, I mean, that was crazy in the early days and it was kind of nobody had done this before. So we were very much making it up as we went along, but um, kind of built, technology and uh, systems and um, a platform that enabled us to sort of make the most out of like what was emerging in social media. And, and of course, the Arab Spring took off around that time. And that was, you know, the making of the company, I suppose. And did you ever train as a journalist then, Maliki? Oh, no. Um, I came to it like I was. A comp- I studied engineering in college, didn't study journalism at all. Um, and then that was in the sort of IT kind of pre to the year 2000 boom. And I ended up um, doing computer programming for several years, about eight, nine years. Even, you know, I went back to it for a couple of years in between uh, journalism jobs. So that was that was brilliant because I ended up like traveling all over the world with that and uh, uh, and made great friends with it. But it wasn't something that I kind of was passionate about. And I suppose 
being influenced maybe by, you know, um, my uncle who was in journalism and uh, maybe my dad and mom a little bit. I, I was kind of looking for something else. I ended up doing a master's. And then basically, you know, Vincent was um, uh, at Village on the go at that time. He needed a website and I kind of was looking for a, a, a start, if you know what I mean. And uh, and he paid me a pittance. But anyway, I got good experience with him. So, that, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, have you ever felt like you've used your engineering degree at all in your current role at the Times? Absolutely. Like the the engineering degree, no, I was a terrible engineer. But um, in terms of like the computer programming days and that kind of stuff, then yes, because like just kind of knowing your way around websites and um, how to decode them, looking for like data within them, looking for patterns as well within sort of information that we're, we're collecting. I mean, that was information technology. Journalism is the business of information. So, th- you know, there are parallels there. And and just looking for patterns within it, you know, um, stru- organizing and structuring, you know, um, information as we're getting it. Like the type of journalism that we're doing now is very evidentiary. And, um, and so we're using, you know, hard facts, hard details that we can elicit from timestamps of, of video content or pictures to like details in the background to using computer programs to manipulate those images to like spot out other, figure out other details in, that are hidden within them. And all of that is kind of uh, leans on just being able to use computers and maybe having more of a technical um, approach to, to, to things. So, so what you're doing now, it's, it's a mix of traditional reporting and digital forensics, I guess. How hard was it to convince the New York Times to, you know, invest in something so new like this? It was, it took a little bit of time, you know, coming into, like, I come from two startups and where your role there is very clear you can you're, you know what you're contributing and you're building towards something as well and then you know to find yourself in a huge organization it takes a little time to kind of you know find your sea legs in a in a, in a place like that and um uh and i think there was maybe an expectation when i came in that i could bring the storyful model into the new york times and revamp a particular unit it doesn't work like that. You need to sort of have the the reporters and the talent and the, build the experience there um, in the midst of sort of changing strategy within the video unit as well, trying to move away from doing it in a particular way to, to a new way. So it took, I think it took probably about a year before, you know, we realized that there was sort of like a, a bigger opportunity out there to do more investigative work rather than, you know, just doing breaking news packages. Now, it was useful in 2016. There were huge, like any number of, of breaking news events, um, and it was useful for that. But um, it took about a year. But I think once we once we dedicated time to it, that was all about creating time and space any investigative journalist knows or journalist knows. And once we did that and we proved the value of it, in two quick stories, then the higher ups uh, called a meeting very quickly. Said, "Explain the reporting. Explain your process." Okay, we get it. What do you need to build this out? And so it was kind of within two months. So, would you say then your Las Vegas report was was that a turning point for you guys in terms of how it was received by the audience? And you know, you you, you proved something quite spectacular there. Let's say. 
Yeah, I think that was the one that, um, you know, outside of the Times and even within the Times, you know, the, the, the broader newsroom got no, got a lot of notice. Um, and that um, video reconstructed what happened uh, at the Las Vegas shooting, the worst mass shooting in, in modern American history. And, you know, the value in doing that was that the police were not releasing information about what happened. There were sort of conspiracy theories sw swirling and police were response was coming under scrutiny and you know by collecting videos of that shooting as awful as it was people kind of kept recording and by comparing the audio signatures of each burst of fire kind of we ended up realizing we had the we could reconstruct the whole event from start to finish in video sometimes from multiple different angles so we could examine what was going on and when you when you added layered on top of that the police scanner audio and layered on top of that the ambulance audio you kind of got a rich experience of 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 a or sorry rich a deeper understanding of how the whole thing unfolded and, and what went on um where the gunman was firing uh, at different times sort of the, the gaps um in various dif different uh, distractions either by the police or by the hotel staff that allowed concert goers time to, to get out of there and to, to flee where they were going to, where ambulances were staging. For an, our audience on site is primarily American and it was a major event. And I think people, you know, first sort of recognize that as a visual investigation. Amazing. And so what you're doing is so, so granular. You know, it's reporting like that, as, as I feel like has never been done before. You know, I think you even analyze shadows, which sounds completely <laughs> insane. Do you want yeah. to explain, you know, the kind of the types of tools you use, Malky, and, and technology? It's premised in the idea that there's, you know, free information, if you like, um, out there, you know, on the open web. And a lot of people call it online open source reporting or OSINT, if you search Twitter for that. Um, you'll find all sorts of people doing it. You know, that combined with like more traditional journalism, like, you know, FOIAing uh, documents and interviewing sources, it can give you, you know, a trove of hard documentary evidence about an event. And a lot of it tends to be audio or visual in nature. And if you can kind of timestamp that, map it out where, where it happened, you can examine sort of in time and space how different things unfolded you can break down critical moments frame by frame and analyze them and, and see what was going on what was going what was going through people's minds by their reactions um and things like that and you can do it in a very low-tech way um just by using you know video editing and audio editing software to examine sound waves or to just like tap through um videos or to color correct videos and pull out extra details uh, and you can do it in high-tech ways as well, where you're creating 3D models and inserting the evidence into those models, uh, reconstructing what's happening, re examining, say, in a bomb site, the relationship of the debris um, or the scarring in walls from, from shrapnel to, like, information that uh, people told you about what was there. Like, for instance, if bodies absorb shrapnel, you have a shadow in the wall. Like, what I'm always trying to do is find if there's an an event that I'm investigating, I'm trying to find the first reports on social media or anywhere um, related to that event, because that gets you the witnesses who are reporting it. It's really quite amazing. It's so new and it changes everything, doesn't it? Because you really can, as you and your team have proved, you can really hold people to account. Maliki, you've done so 
you and your team have done so many extraordinary investigations, as you mentioned, Las Vegas, chemical bombings in Syria, Gaza, that poor nurse being shot dead. Is there an investigation that you're most proud of? The the Gaza one, I think the Gaza one probably for the, the tools that we used. Um, and that was kind of like you know, the, the sort of highest bar in terms of like for, forensic reconstruction that we've done. And it was purely experimental. We were chancing our arm and it was it was kind of merging a couple of different practices we had seen before. It was a 3D, um, d- for memory, a 3D modeling. D- yes. Did you use in that one? Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm, I can picture it. Yeah, there was a, the, the story there is that there was a, um, a, a medic called Razanal Najjar and our team had interviewed her a couple of weeks before she was shot dead. And she was a medic who was volunteering during the protests of 2018 um, in towards the south of Gaza. Um, and uh, she was out in the protest field. Um, there were um, videos of her kind of you know, getting closer to the fence and warning shots being fired at, at, at her feet. And those images kind of flashed across news media. Um, and she became a kind of almost a symbol of, um, you know, the the seemingly liberal use of fire to police those um, those protests uh, that summer. And our challenge became, you know, obviously we wanted to cover it and find out what happened, but the challenge kind of became, could we figure out where she was shot and when and, and, uh, and why, answer why she was shot as well, primarily, um, and if that shot was justified. And, um, you know, we had a good source network. We had stringers in Gaza who were going around collecting footage, but we went there as well. And that was critical because we found about 40 or 50 people who were on the protest field that day and we downloaded the content directly from their devices. And anytime you f- take a photograph or, or, or record a video um, on a device, it's imprinted with the timestamp. And because we got those direct files, we could create a timeline of what happened. And although we weren't there to bear witness that day, we were digitally bearing witness through all of this footage, some of which captured many of those critical moments from multiple different angles. And so, you know, our view wasn't really occluded. Um, And uh, we captured, we actually had six videos of that critical moment uh, unfolding as well. Um, And what we also did while we were there um, with the permission of the IDF was we droned the area around Gaza that this happened. And the images happened to be so... Uh, high uh, high definition that we could create a 3D model using what's called photogrammetry. Um, and then by just kind of sketching in details from the images, like the position of the, the jeeps and the sandworms and the soldiers, and then by placing the videos into the model um, and by triangulating each video against each other and against landmarks in the background, we were able to freeze that moment in time and every person and where they were within that sort of critical line of fire and show that the nearest protester was 140 yards from the the snipers. And that sort of use of lethal force is justified when there's an imminent threat to life. And it clearly wasn't in that moment. Um, And, you know, we got all sorts of other details as well. And, you know, being so specific um, kind of stood to us because when we went to the IDF to interview them about, about that, and we were given certain answers, we could challenge that or we could say, oh, yeah, that makes sense because of this. Um, and we had very far more specific detail than even they had about what what happened. And what was their response? 
when you showed them this prima facie evidence, surely they couldn't deny that the medic should not have been shot. Well, they, for the first time in that interview, uh, when they saw the evidence, they, had, you know, they admitted that uh, they had killed her. And so that was a sort of a revelation in its own right. I think we had more information than they had about um, what had happened. They had already um, launched an, an internal inquiry, but after our interview, they launched a criminal investigation as well. And that's unusual because of all this, you know, 5,000 people were shot, um, several hundred were killed um, by that stage uh, when we had interviewed them. And they they had, up until that point, uh, opened only two criminal inquiries. So this was the third one. So it was a big step. And I think then after that, you know, we heard that um, the new commander of the um, IDF forces out in Gaza said that they had um, adjusted their their live fire policy, you know, subsequent to the to the investigation, but we didn't get that officially. So, uh, that's extraordinary. So, I mean, you're talking about real impact off the back of your journalism, like that. That must feel rather good because it often doesn't happen like that. Yeah, it does. I mean, what we were doing was, you know, diving into that one incident and then looking sort of broadly at, at other incidents that followed a similar pattern. See, you know, what was there something to discern here? Or was it just a one-off one mistake? Um, and um, anyway, it, it involved all of that technical stuff, but also studying, you know, uh, Supreme Court submissions in Israel made by the, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, you know, talking to snipers, talking to former Israeli and U.S. snipers, British snipers too. Um, and... Um, you know, really trying to get an understanding of that, getting out onto the field itself so that we weren't taking, um, making any assumptions about distances or what it looked like out there. We got permission to go right up close to the fence, um, all of that sort of stuff. So it was deeply, deeply reported as well as the sort of forensics, which gave us very specific detail. Well, that was my next question, actually, because I know you did travel to Gaza for that particular investigation. And with your other investigations, you don't often, I mean, you never really get to do that, do you? I wondered if that's, you know, if that sometimes feels strange to be so far away from the people you're actually reporting on. Yeah, I mean, I think when you when you get there and you're talking to people um, in person, then you really, you know, you, you get a different sense for this uh, of the story, and um, and so we've been trying to do that more and more. We managed to do it in story we did in Afghanistan and Nigeria, and and on our doorstep here in in New York, um, the killing of a kid in in the Bronx, um, but. It, it it poses its own challenges stylistically then in how you want to tell the story, you know, in sort of like real specific and short punctuated detail or in a more doc style, you know, piece as well, which is um, more emotive. But, uh, you know, I don't know, there are pros and cons to both. But we're trying to get out a little bit more and get out into the field and introduce more cinematography, but also, you know, talking to, to the people who are experiencing these events firsthand. And with your Syrian reporting, Malachi, which is also really well known, um, you you and your team categorically exposed Russians bombing Syrian hospitals and schools in a refugee camp. How did you do that? I think I read something about you somehow obtaining voice recordings from the Russian cockpit. 
I mean, yeah. how, how on earth did you even get that? It was clear to us in looking at what was going on in Idlib last year that hospitals were, again, being deliberately targeted um, as part of the military strategy. Uh, it had happened in Aleppo. It had happened in Douma. Uh, it happened in Idlib in 2017 um, before they abandoned that campaign, you know, in other places around um, Syria as well. And, you know, we interviewed you know, doctors, um, other medics, um, supporting organizations. We looked at data um, around the, uh, the bombing of hospitals um, and other medical facilities, you know, in, in conjunction with the, those campaigns and at the start of those campaigns. Um, and like it's when, when you've got like 500 incidents of, of, of hospitals being bombed, it's no accident. Um, and the question then that our editor was um, pushing us to answer was, well, that's all fine and well, but who's, who's doing it? Can we, can we assign blame? And usually you can do that by looking at weapons remains or looking at, you know, you know serial numbers that are imprinted on, on, on weapons fragments. But uh, in this case, we didn't have that. And so um, we were like in talking to um, witnesses to one, one of the attacks, uh, they said, we know it's the Russians because A, we know their aircraft and B, we have them on, um, you know, on audio doing it. And, um, you know, we, we, discovered that there's a network of plane observers and spotters. They're watching in the skies, they're watching air, uh, airports, um, but they're also listening into the open radio communications between ground control and the pilots in the sky, both for the Syrian Air Force and the Russians. And it's a bit like um, kind of the police scanner audio here in the States that people listen in, but somebody started recording it and timestamping the recordings and we found out who was doing that and they made those available to us and um that was a trove of really valuable data um going back months um and so we got access to all of this stuff and we created a system to to basically process it it was coming in five ten second chunks and so we had thousands of files um to to manage um and uh and basically we had a, a list of the attacks that we had been investigating and we had rough times for the attacks, but our challenge became finding out the specific times down to the minute that those attacks happened. And then comparing what was happening on the ground to what was uh, being recorded in the skies above at that time. Um, and we were able to get very, like, identify individual pilots by their pilot numbers uh, who were you know, dropping a bomb and circling back five minutes later, dropping a bomb in the same hospital, circling back again and doing it again and again. And we looked at May 5th, um, uh, 2019, when they hit four hosp four underground hospitals. Um, and uh, and in, in one case, they shared the coordinates of the hospital, you know, um, in, in the minutes just before it was bombed. And we knew it was bombed at that time because we had an incident report, but then we, you know, you collect video evidence directly from the witnesses and they have the timestamp in those video files um, and it's never one piece of evidence that we'll rely on but we'll stack all of the different pieces of evidence get multiple videos if we can um, cctv that's recorded inside hospitals uh, and you can you can see the hospital shuddering with the force of the of the impact um, all of that sort of stuff and then we also got separately um, there the early warning system that they had over there automatically tweets out um, plane spotted over 
Cafrazita, it's heading south. Plane spotted over Marat and Numan, it's heading west. Helicopter over Cafrenabal, and it's circling. And this is a warning system that uh, once they enter it into their spreadsheet, it automatically tweets out. And so we knew that they weren't filling in this evidence retrospectively. It was actively doing it. It was an active early warning system for doctors and for others in hospitals and also um, rescue workers as well. Um, and so this that was another layer of evidence as well on top of that, as well as the witnesses who were there and the, the, the hospital managers, patients who were, who were being treated. Um, so it was a, a months-long, very deep, very detailed, but very forensic um investigation that that proved without a doubt that that Russian pilots had um, committed some of the worst atrocities in Syria last year. It's extraordinary. I mean, you know, the layers of corroboration that you have to do. But I guess the minute you obviously knew the the coordinates of the hospital and then if you heard a Russian pilot stating those exact coordinates, you know, that I'm sure that at that moment you were like, we got them right. That's it. That's exactly what we said. Um, you know, Evan Hill, who was one of the um, central team members, stood up from his desk. He got a text message from our Russian video editor who was translating. Um, and he said, I've got a bunch of coordinates that these guys are using. Evan comes back, checks the coordinates against the hospital that we have, stood up from his desk. And he said, we have them. And uh, and that was, you know, we were we, we thought, oh, they're probably sharing the coordinates for all the other hospitals as well. They weren't. That was the only one that they shared the, the coordinates for. Um, but, uh, you know, by other means and by establishing the minute of the other attacks, we were able to to, to find out that they also were responsible. Yeah. Anyways, uh, horrifying. Stuff, but we got there. We got you there. You got there. Maliki, tell me. Um, during your time as a journalist, what has been the kind of the most crazy experience you've had? One that definitely is one that I remember is when we were in Gaza. And and I just remember one evening we were interviewing one of the subjects, beautiful evening, it was, a, it was close to sunset, down by the waterfront. Uh, and it was just stunning. And it, it was around the time when these uh, Great Return March protests, they had been weekly protests that uh, were running every Friday. And, you know, lots of people had been injured and, and shot uh, during during those protests. Um, and they had gone from being weekly to daily. And this was a Tuesday evening, um, if I remember. And we just heard our stringer got a message um, that uh, 20-something people had been shot just up the road from where we were, we were filming and uh, were being taken to a nearby hospital. Um, but we we arrive at the hospital and, you know, it's absolute carnage when you walk inside there. You know, there's, there's a, a lot of young men who've been shot in the leg. You know, I remember walking in behind friends who were using their arms as sort of, you know, seats to, to lift their buddy who, who had been shot in the lower leg, you know, through the corridor to treatment um, in a side room, seeing a fellow who'd been shot on the top of his head. It hadn't got through his head, but grazed his head, but his friends were trying to prop him up and his his head rolling around, eyes rolling back. Um, Loads of other men who were there who who had metal pins sticking out of their legs, their lower legs, who were there for treatment and to have their wounds um, cleaned, you know, all just standing aside against the walls to let let the the traffic through. Um, And just absolute um, mayhem inside there. Um, And... And a doctor saying, "Hey, you should, good, good. You can't, you can't film inside here. Um, 
but go down to the morgue. And so we turned around and walked out of the hospital and basically follow the sound down the hill, you know, when we remember approaching a small square building, there are dozens of people outside banging on these um, two metal doors or the middle of the building. And there were um, a few young men, early 20s, who'd been shot and killed, you know, just in the, in the, in the previous hour and a half or so. And, um, uh, and we're inside there. And somehow Yusra Lou, who's, uh, who was um, a producer, camera, uh, woman on the job managed to like squeeze right in through all these people, you know, who are bustling and jostling, trying to get in through these doors, um, and and you know the noise emanating from from inside there's again just screams and shouts and roars, and convinces um, this big burly man who also had been shot and was on on crutches and was slamming the door from the inside with his crutches to get in, and he just kind of. She whispers something in her, well, not whispers, says something to him, and he just got like, grand under my arm, and the two of us duck in. And um, and just inside, you know, the, the, there was a, a relative of the of, of one of the deceased um, who came in to identify him, and, you know, lots of friends who were there. And, uh, you know, I remember just the, 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 you know, on the left-hand side, you had these... Um, you know, just the, the slabs where the bodies are, are um, kept and it being pulled over and just the place absolutely erupting. This this poor young fellow had been shot in the neck um, and killed and his friends swarming in around him and hugging him and kissing him. And uh, anyway, it was absolutely very, very memorable, stood out, but we wanted to tr- try to follow the story. And so we said to... Um, you know, to, to the, the medics who were there, you know, when is the body going to be prepared? Could we, you know, um, you know, capture this story and, and talk to the family? And they said, yeah, sure, come back in the morning um, around seven o'clock and we'll be, um, you know, preparing the body and, and, and all of that. And in the meantime, um, so we go home, uh, get up in the morning, come back and, uh, and the top of the, above the doorway, uh, has been bust in and the body has been taken. And uh, because for whatever reason, the, the friends or the, the family, you know, wanted somebody else to to take care and prepare the body. And so we find out where the body has been taken to and it's taken to another morgue um, where he's laid out and friends um, are slowly coming in and, and neighbors and saying their goodbyes and farewells. And, you know, they're, you know, teenage boys who were neighbors of this guy. Um, but I remember it, it kind of, the whole thing, you know, it, it sort of, um, it, it was an example of the, 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 the sadness and the anger and the hopelessness of that whole situation and the politicization of it. Well, that is really interesting to hear about the politicization of that poor young guy's death. But it was great that you did get to go to Gaza and carry out that really important investigation. But listen, Maliki, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks a million for coming on and look forward to catching up in person soon. Lovely to see you. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. 
This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson. 